Okay, thank you. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're doing a little bit of a different intro today. My co-host, Eritrea, is here, and we've been recording interviews like all afternoon, so we're both a little bit dead, but we have a very exciting, very exciting first for the podcast. We have, for the first time, a bilingual episode. Tell us a little bit about how this happened. Hola, bienvenidos a Diabetics Doing Things. Diabetics haciendo cosas. Yeah, no. Um, sorry, I just feel like we had to at least say the intro in Spanish because this one's a little bit in Spanish. Um, Rob got an email from a gentleman who is all about diabetes awareness in Mexico and really wanted to talk about how there's like a lack of representation for diabetics in Latin America. And this gentleman is based out of Campeche, Mexico, which is part of the Yucatan Peninsula, which is beautiful. Um, if you've ever been to Cancun, it's around that area. Um, and so he emailed Rob and Rob was like, Hey, let's do this. And I said, let's, let's interview this guy and let's do some of it in Spanish. And so that's well, kind of because the context of his, his, the context of his email was important because he said, Hey Rob, you've never talked about to anyone from Mexico or central or South America. And I was like, wow, you're right. Uh, let's make it happen. And lucky for me, Eritrea is bilingual. I guess trilingual, quad, yeah, quad trilingual. Give me my props. Don't take away okay. my credit, yeah. fam. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a, I speak one language over here, like some simp. But um, I was like, sure, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And Jorge came on the pod and absolutely crushed it. You're going to love this interview. Once we get into things, it's just, it's just amazing how diabetes can be the connector uh, for so many people worldwide. And so, yeah, we're going to continue to expand into Latin and South America. So if you're listening to this and you have a story to tell, we now have somebody who can help facilitate that story. This podcast is officially bilingual and it's apropos because I was looking at our Spotify wrapped for the year and we had listeners in 26 countries worldwide. So it's important for us to not only represent in English, but also uh, Spanish and potentially other languages down the line. So if I could just get on my like Duolingo or something and actually get on my job, maybe we could do that. Spanish, the Arabic podcasts are coming, all of that. I, we're really lucky English is such a language that's spoken because honestly, for this episode specifically, Jorge's English, I mean, his English is great. Like it's not hard to understand. Like he's really, really good at it. Most of the conversation, 75% of it is in English. Um, so for those of you who are listening from Mexico, a lot of it is in English, but we did put in some very special little gems for you guys that are all in Spanish. Um, and I tried to switch as much as possible. So <laughs> there's that. And for longtime listeners who remember when I used to ask every guest one question at the end of the pod, Jorge answers that question in Espanol. So get ready for a great interview. And I'm going to let the three of us, Jorge, Eritrea, and I take it away from here. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling amazing stories of people with diabetes from all across the world. And that is the key phrase today, all across the world, because for the first time, we have a guest from Mexico. Uh, and I want to introduce you to him here shortly, but this episode will also be uh, the first multi-language episode. So we'll have some of the conversation in English, some of the conversation in Spanish, and I'm very excited that uh, my co-host Eritrea is here today uh, to facilitate that part of the conversation for, as you guys know, I do not speak uh, Spanish in any way that would be considered conversational. So uh, Jorge Ruiz, welcome to the show, sir. 
Thank you very much. Hi, Eritrea. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me here. I think that I've, I've been following you for so long, and I think what you're doing so great. And I just want to be part of that. And thank you very much for having me here. Well, I, I did want to give some context to the listeners of how this interview got started. You sent me a message on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned, hey, I want to be a part of this because to date, there haven't been any Spanish-speaking episodes. There haven't been any Latin American, Central American, South American guests on the podcast. And we need to talk about what it's like to, and especially for us here in Texas, a very close neighbor, Mexico, uh, what life is like for people with diabetes in Mexico. So let's kind of start like we always do. Tell us about your personal story with diabetes. How did you come to be diagnosed with diabetes? Well, 26 years ago, I'm 41 now. Uh, I got diagnosed. It was like, uh, it was really funny because uh, my mom works at a hospital. So she has been really aware about the symptoms and about everything that has to be about diabetes. A cousin of mine just went diagnosed by my mom's recommendation. So she was really aware of what diabetes was or what, how, was, how, how it was presented. So I live with my grandfather and she always thought that my grandfather was the one because of the ants in the, in the bathroom and all these things. And so he got all the tests and he was really, <laughs> he went to the doctor a lot of times. And then one day she told me, Let, let's get you a, a, some tests. And I was at high school. I was starting high school. First year in Mexico is, is at 15 years old. And then she, I was in classes. I went to the to the testing and then go to classes. And like at at the middle of the day, my parents were there and they told me we're going to uh, to go to see a doctor. And they didn't tell me what. The doctor was two hours away because in my city there were no specialists, and we were talking about where there were no doctors that that were specialized in diabetes. So the doctor was two hours away. My mom always told me that. I, in the, in the road, I was singing and I was so happy and saying, oh, we're going to the city and we're going to have lunch there and all that. And she didn't tell me, she says she was dying inside because she knows I was 500. Of my, level, my sugar level was in 500. So I got to the, to the hospital uh, and uh, there was this, my pediatrician that, that is also family and he starts they start with all the tests and then like three or four hours ago i was 600 at the sugar level when i got there and that's a risk my mom always told me that everyone says no don't go there because they're going to be two hours and his sugar levels are going up and you, you, what are you going to do if he got a coma on the road and all that but they take the risk they know that there were no no one here in my city that, that could help us uh, or could give a, a, a specialized opinion. So I got there, I got uh, in the middle, and three hours later, I have this doctor that is still my, my doctor now. Uh, and he say, well, welcome, you are diabetes and you are insulin, you, you will need insulin. And my parents were totally freaked out and they were saying, no, we need to see another doctor, we need to to get a second opinion and i remember and and always i always say that because 
I think the fear that, that you, you have when you hear something that you don't know makes you even braver than you think you are. And I remember that after 10 or 15 minutes of this discussion between the doctor, the nurses, and my parents, I said, okay, doctor, what do I have to do? You have, I have to learn to get a, a shot. I have to learn to, to mix the, the insulin at that time. You need to mix your insulin every day. So that was, that was the attitude that I need to take. I, I, I always say it because people say, oh, you are so great and you are so brave. No, I, I wasn't brave. I was totally scared. I was panicked. But you need to know what do you have to do. And if that's the difference between living a normal life or staying or, or living a shorter life, come on, just tell me what do right. I have. It's so interesting because I think I, I was having a conversation with someone today and they were saying that who knew that life with diabetes or even the moment you were diagnosed with diabetes would inspire so many people to rise to the occasion and to, to take that on. And like you said, what do I have to do? How do I manage this disease? Even in spite of, you know, denial or resistance from your parents and your family, um, having to go out of your way. And, and I, I really want to focus on that. Now you mentioned this before we started recording access to doctors who are specialists in diabetes. So endocrinologists, certified diabetes educators here in the United States is very rare in Mexico. So driving two hours out of your way is not, not everyone can do that. And like you said, it's, it's dangerous to do that in some cases, because your sugars are going very high. Um, so what, what is life like for people in Mexico who don't live near a endocrinologist? And, and, you know, you, you mentioned you were trained on how to mix your insulin at the time, how to do your injections, very similar to somehow, uh, to the way that we're taught here in the United States. But what, what is that like at large for, for people living in Mexico with diabetes? I was talking about before with you that my main, my main worry or, or what really worries me about is that we have all the opportunities and we have all the access or I had all the access to the doctors, to the medication, to pay a private doctor. But there's, I think that the 80% of people diagnosed with diabetes here in Mexico, they don't have it. And they go to a public health uh, institution that first you are going to, to get the attention for a doctor that is not specialized in diabetes. And then when you got your sugar so high, then maybe if in your city there's there's a, a endocrinologo, that's what's called here. I don't know how do you uh, how do you name there, who is this the, the doctor specialized in diabetes, and then you have to to wait a lot of time for that, and you have to learn by yourself. I we we've been working with uh, with people through the, what's similar to the American Association in, in, in the United States, but it's like Federación Mexicana de Diabetes here in Mexico, that we have the chapter of Campeche. And we really have amazing stories of parents telling us that they, they need to, to learn. My parents needed to learn. They, they interview with other parents, with people from diabetes. We travel every weekend to uh, this near city that is called Merida 
to have this like uh, there there was a community that there were nutritions and there were people telling you how to manage your diabetes for a better control these people doesn't have that and they normally they have like their examples of people with diabetes is people that is overweight that is having a lot of complications that is what people say you you are the, the first thing in mexico that you imagine is that you go, you're going to lose a feet your feet mm-hmm. or you're going to lose an arm because that's what diabetes means in mexico not well controlled people that's that's definitely and not only the access because you could have the access but maybe you don't have the money to to get their insulin public health system is is having uh, a, a great effort we're having a great effort to have insulin mostly the insulin that that the public health system gives here is almost what you can can have it uh, outside or or in a pharmacy but I don't know, maybe they have to wait one month to have their insulin and maybe they just got run out of insulin and they don't get shots in that month. So it's right. really a big risk here in Mexico to be a diabetic. I, I think that we haven't, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have the, the complete picture of how dangerous it is to do all the things that you are forced to do because you don't have access to this caring. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And Eritrea, you were nodding pretty emphatically when uh, Jorge was describing learning on your own. Um, So I think from an education standpoint, and and you talked about sometimes I think me especially, because I'm very active in diabetes online community and very access to the latest technology, even just reading about it, understanding what's out there. We forget that there's this entire sort of full spectrum of diabetes care and management. And we mostly talk about in the U.S. insulin access because it's a big problem for us uh, from a cost perspective. Uh, But there's also the education and there's also the uh, access to test strips and, uh, you know, sort of general consumer diabetes supplies. So I want to talk a little bit about like the education. So for someone who is someone like you, you were diagnosed, you live two hours outside of the big city. Um, someone today is diagnosed with diabetes or, you know, their, their doctor, their local doctor says, you know, Hey, you've got diabetes. What, what is the process for that person? What are they, especially if they can't go to the city, if they don't have the you know ability to do the transportation or don't have the money, what does that look like for that person? I think that is like a death sentence most of the most of the times or they feel like a death sentence that was that that's why i feel so important that we have stories from people from mexico because we need to show them that yes it requires a big compromise yes it requires to make a lot of efforts but you can do it right so i think that diabetes in mexico means you're going to to be dying young maybe or you're going to have uh, a lot of problems and I think that people here in Mexico we have like this uh, idea of if I if I'm going to die let's enjoy the life so yeah <laughs> thing to take care of themselves is totally I mean 
I really, I have a lot of arguments with, with uh, nutritionists that say, come on, you can have one uh, cola uh, a day. Like, like, come on. I, the only way I can drink a sugar, uh, a Coke with sugar, is because I, I'm so low that I, that I don't find another way to go, to go high. So I think that those uh, costumbres, those habits, that people have it like for a long time, or diet is terribly for a people for people who has to take care of of their weight. So I think that that's that's what it means to be be diagnosed. It's a, a death sentence. Costumbres or manias? Yeah. Yeah, because they're bad. Um, so. When you said that you're living, like before you lived a few hours from your city, the major city, I would argue that that's most people's situation in Mexico. Most people live two hours away from a major hospital. Um, so a little bit of background, my family, I have a lot of doctors in my family, but I also have a lot of hospital administration in my family in Mexico. And so like a lot of my tias, like they work in a seguro and like they're the administrators there. So they're the people that meet the diabetic and they're like, oh, tienes azúcar, pasa Luis. Like we're sending you to a bigger hospital because we don't have someone on staff here to take care of you. Um, and I, so uh, I went through a situation when I was diabetic in Mexico and I'm gonna share a little bit so you can understand the lack of education there, Rob. So when I was uh, first diagnosed, my mom moved me to Mexico for the first half of the year that I was there, everything was fine. But then she left and I decided I didn't want to take my insulin anymore. I was nine at the time. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm not going to. So my grandma would take me to see regular doctors. And they would be like, Why is she like that? She doesn't look okay. She smells fruity. But the blood sugars on the meter were fine because I was like flicking the strip, which by the way, don't ever do this people. But if you flick the strip, it lowers your sugar. Um, and so I created these fake records Nobody drew blood. Nobody was like, hey, this nine-year-old is manipulating us. They were willing to believe a meter instead of like going the extra mile to do work because in Mexico, the stigma of diabetics is like, you're dead anyway. Like you're not really actually here. You're not healthy. So by the time they figured it out, I got really sick. I was like in a coma at the Seguro, but they were going to send me to like a bigger hospital in San Luis if I didn't wake up in a few hours. Thankfully, I woke up, so I never had to go. But like the way they talk about going to San Luis, like going to the bigger hospital in Mexico, it's o te vienes o te vas. Like, or you don't make it back or you make it back. Like, that's just what it is. Most people expect you to die when you go to the big hospital. So I don't want to say that medical, like, because there's some good medical schools in Mexico. There are some amazing doctors that come out of Mexico. But the lack of caring for the other person, I think there's a lot of individualistic themes in Hispanic culture. So it's like, like, if you don't want to take care of yourself, that's you. And that's how Mexicans kind of are. So I say that just to kind of shed some light on, it's really common for people not to have the access, even if there's a pharmacy down the street from them. I think it's yeah. interesting though, the cultural side effects of diabetes. So you met, you've talked about a little bit about the mindset of, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well enjoy my life anyway. I'm not going to deny myself these simple pleasures. Um, if I'm going to the hospital, people die. So I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that. Um, also, you know, I think you mentioned this a little bit, Jorge and, and Eritrea and I were talking about this in preparation for this call, you know, at least from a, and I don't want to compare Tex-Mex to Mexican food, but 
the cultural, like cultural food is not always super diabetes friendly. And especially like in the US, one of the big problems that we have in our education system is that most of our nutritionists do not have cultural diets uh, that they can recommend or adapting their plans to fit the foods that people want to eat and they, and that are accessible to them as well. So how does that play a part, especially in these rural communities of, you know, if you do get preparation and training for counting carbs, you know, uh, tortillas and, uh, rice and like things with high fat and beans, like uh, very rich, uh, in, in the Mexican culture, those are difficult foods to manage as from a diabetes perspective. Uh, do you find that that is something that you see that's frustrating or that people feel sort of bad about that? They're just not able to control their sugars with the foods that they are used to eating. More than frustrating. It's really difficult to get rid of all this, of this habits that you have. I mean, in, in a regular meal, you have like six tortillas at least. No? And you have like one kilo of tortillas on the table. So mm -hmm. it's so easy to do that. I, I, I actually do it. And when, you, when you're at the number five, you say, oh my God, this is going to be a problem. And I think it's really difficult because of the cultural uh, habits that we have. Uh, I, I remember uh, the mother of, of one kid that we have in the association that she was telling us that I, I don't eat... They, they were really, really, really poor. And she says, I prefer to give my, my kid the, the chicken that I, the, the broiled chicken that I, and not eating because it's quality food. And maybe I, I will take all the not quality food and all the tortillas and all the, because she needs that. And that's really, I think, the food here in Mexico. We solve everything with food. If we are sad, we eat. If we are happy, we eat. If we are anxious, we eat. If we are not anxious, we eat. It's really difficult. Well, I think everyone in the world, but Mexico has this big relationship. On the Dia de Muertos, on that, that day that, that just passed on, on, on November, it's a lot of food. It's really difficult to be to get a part of this because it's like I don't know how to call it like like los festines of the Romans where the Romans do all this food and they have to eat all day well that's what I'm gonna do normally on, on that day so it's really hard uh, people in Mexico thinks that if you are if you are a big boy you are health that's not Exactly. It, maybe even if you're skinned, you're not held to. But that's like like uh, a mission of our mothers. A mother in Mexico, a mom, has to get his kids the most bigger that he can because he's well not. He's so held. Uh, he's eating so well, and the, they telling you you eat so well when you finish a big dish. That's not the. That's not a big, a big compliment. That that would be. You have to to eat what you need. For me, it has been a problem. I have a lot of problems with that. I've been even in. I've been changing to to vegan. Uh, the last two years, I tried. It's impossible for a Mexican to be vegan. I was wondering how you did that. I was like, um, how? <laughs> you know, I, I say I was a vegan hypocrite. You know that that. 
that you say you're vegan, but you you just fall in love with a hamburger. But I think that it's going to be a struggle for all our lives because our culture is totally the opposite to what we need to understand as well-being. I think that's the big problem. We have a lot of holidays. We have a lot. Like everything is like, okay, for example, the birthday of the Virgin Mary, which everybody knows as December 12th. Like that's a huge Mexican holiday. We don't even know what that is in America. El Dia del Niño, the day of the kid. That's a huge Mexican holiday. Like, and I think it's like on a random Tuesday. So I'm saying like, he's right. There's so much of our culture that's just like, sit down and eat these tamales. So. Well, yeah. and I think that's something that makes diabetes super unique from country to country uh, and even in different provinces uh, and different states in the U.S., I think we, and this is where I'm going to be hard on U.S. citizens currently. I think I, I remember looking up the uh, the percentage. Many people in the U.S. don't ever leave the border. They don't have. They only are in the United States. They never travel out. Um, a dramatic percentage, and we can dig into why that is later. But um, what that means is, I think that they don't understand when we talk about rural Mexico or outside of Mexico City, outside of, you know, maybe Americans go visit resort towns in, uh, in Mexico, but they're not, you know, truly in the country. They're not in authentic parts of Mexico that are very rural and very sparse and very spread out. Um, so you have, like, the infrastructure is different. So it's, it's, you know, where if I'm diagnosed in Dallas, there's 20 endocrinologists here in town, that, that I'm going to have access to. If one doesn't work out, I can switch to another one. You know, uh, I think the healthcare system, while it does have problems, is much larger. Uh, there's multiple hospitals. There's just the general infrastructure, you know, roads, towns, electricity, et cetera. It's not as rural. It's obviously like uh, very developed. So I want to talk a little bit about what it's really like because one of the things that we talk about related to diabetes in Mexico in the US is insulin. And you mentioned that it is available without a prescription and the and you can get it and just show up to the pharmacy and pay for it and get it. Uh, Eritrea, I'd love for you to talk about your experience recently doing that as well. But you know that that's all we hear about. So we don't hear the whole picture. We don't see this like not you yes, that is true in some cases, but you may have to drive two hours to be able to get to a pharmacy. You may uh you, it's it's cheap from a, an American's perspective, but that's a very different uh, you know cost for somebody in Mexico. So, talk a little bit about what Americans don't understand about living with diabetes in Mexico. Well, definitely, the income for a Mexican is totally different. The, the only the the moneda, the the bills are so different in the U.S. and in Mexico. That's why it's so expensive for us. And yes, you can go to, to a pharmacy, to a drugstore, say, hey, I just need this, I don't know, Rhizodec, that's what, what I use, or Umlock, and say, yeah, okay, here it is. And you have to pay like 400 pesos, 500 pesos, that for a Mexican would be maybe their 80% or 90% of their income in that week. So if you need, well, actually, my, my case, I need two three of, or four insulin pens at a month. So they imagine what they are, what 
what they have to sacrifice with their income to have access. So yes, it's easier, but it's ex really expensive. And then I think we, we're getting better. So long ago, there were no way I need to, to travel to buy the, the insulins. And I, I have like 10 or, or 12 pens here in, in, in my house and, and then uh, take it to, and, and then the next month go in and, and have their stock, their stock of, of insulins. Now it's really easy to, to get it. Now we have access to all the insulins in the drugstore. Maybe in the in the Seguro Social that, that Eritrea was calling, that is like social security here or social public health institution, uh, they have, I, I, I know they have the insulins I take. I, I'm, I'm registered at the, at the social security, but I don't use them because normally the people goes and say, oh, we just have three of them and they just run out. So you have to wait another month or two months, or you have to go buy it and maybe we can refund you. So I think that's for, a, for I don't know, for anyone who, who wants to take care, if you are going to start with all these barriers and all these problems, you, you definitely are going to say, oh, come on, I'm not going to do three times, going to three times to the drugstore or two times, or are going to buy it now, but they don't refund me. And so next time I just stop taking the shots. That's the easier way. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that, sorry, go ahead, Rob. No, no, I, I, I was going to say like, those are the decisions that, you know, we, some people have to make in the United States, right? But I think in mass, many people, you know, with commercial insurance, people who, uh, people like me, for example, very rarely do we have to make a decision of, do I skip this meal and save my insulin and, you know, go into this sort of rationing phase? And there are plenty of examples of people in the United States that ration insulin. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that mindset is so much more rare here. We don't even entertain that that is the reality for many people in other places, especially in Mexico, because on the surface, like the, if we only read the headlines, which is all anyone ever does here anymore, uh, we say, oh, well, insulin's cheap in Mexico. Cool. We can move on and solve another problem. But they're still, you know, suffering. People with diabetes are suffering from the same problems we're suffering from here because of cost. And, you know, that for me, affordability and accessibility kind of go hand in hand where, you know, the, there are people who are making decisions right now that we don't know about who are just saying, hey, well, my blood sugar is high, but I need to save this insulin for the remainder of the month. So I'm just going to wait till it, I'm just going to, you know, exercise or I'm going to not give myself a shot. I'm just going to live with it high for a little while. Yes, of course. Um, really, what the problem is, I think that's the bigger problem that, that we have. You don't, you don't only need to be like sure that you want to take care of yourself. You, you will have to struggle with taking care of yourself. You will have to, like, it, it's like an obstacle race, you know, like a Spartan race. You will have to, ha to go down, go up, and then you can have like the minimum uh, things to take care of yourself. So that's really, a, yeah, a, an obstacle race. Something that I think Americans don't understand is what Jorge was talking about with the cost to living difference. So 
right now Mexico's peso is actually at 16 I think it was at 20 a few weeks ago so it's yeah it's changing um, but most of the time people who live in Mexico once a month they're making about 1500 pesos which is like what 120 dollars no like that yeah let it's a crazy number to think about like the amount of money that people really truly live on and feed their families because a lot of us aren't okay like in a situation where Jorge is a little bit older they were able to figure it out but there are situations where you're gonna either buy one kid's insulin or you're gonna feed the whole family there are literal little kids who like are outside I, there was a little boy in the town that I'm from that I remember when I was a kid my mom would send supplies to because he sold bubble gum like he literally would walk around selling little 10 cent chicles because that's how he could pay for his insulin. So I've never seen a child do that in America. And that's what I say is like the difference of the, because I'm not saying we don't ration like Rob said in America, but I am just saying that the desperation in Mexico is, it's, it's, out, it's out of hand and it's really sad to watch it. And, you know, I wish there was more that we could do for all of it. Well, and I'm looking here as well, you know, the, because I was doing some Googling. So like cost of living in Mexico versus like the minimum income. And it looks like there's a very big difference. Like the, there's an income equality problem in Mexico, just like there is in the U S where mm -hmm. you're looking at the top 10% of the population earn 30 times more than the poorest 10%. And so just to give everybody who's listening and who's doing math in their head, looks like the average household income. And this is, this is reported by, I'm looking at a site right now, Baja Insider, Average household income is 13,000 pesos, which is about $840 a month or so. And, and and I think that's not, that's maybe even on the higher end. That's on the higher end. Yeah. Like just like, even just me thinking about family members, like that's a lot of money. So, so I think by comparison, 800, your monthly income at $840, if, even if you're paying $300 for your monthly insulin, like, and you think about rent and you think about family and you think about disposable, you know, forget about disposable income. Um, you know, everything from there is just uh, the, the tremendous sacrifice you have to make just to keep yourself alive. And then something that Jorge also mentioned was with the social security, when you get your insulin and how, like, if they don't have any, you have to go get your own and then maybe they'll pay you back. So much in Mexico is like that. So much of it is like organized, organizational, structural, bullshit for lack of a better word because that's that's what it is it's some or there's somebody in the town who doesn't like you whose grandma is the administrator there and so now you didn't get an appointment no that's how it goes like that's real stuff that happens because human beings are at the face of these organizations so it's real mucky like it's real conspiratorial over there so to me but that's just my opinion of what I see from the administrative side of getting medications getting your appointments getting what you need um but outside of that, Jorge, I want to ask you, are there any treatments that you like to do or that you think um, are good for you that you do in Mexico that maybe aren't available here? Because I, I love like extra treatments or IVs or anything like that that y'all have. Well, I, I have to tell you that maybe with all I, I just tell you uh, the, the, the approach into a best to my best control is not like like another than that you have so you you are like my heroes because you can have all these ranches and all that but i think that what's really easy here in mexico to be is like we have a lot of of public spaces and we have a lot of and that's free and you don't need to pay a gym and that and and the people is really get used to 
and the government is is doing well here in Campeche they are doing they are building uh, all these spaces so people can do ex can exercise i was really i was really uh, it shocked me that when i went to cuba to la habana people were doing exercise at 3 p.m. in the in the sun totally and they were doing exercise till three four five hours and they have all this great body uh, and, and all this great health because of that because they are doing exercise all day long and i think that the only thing that that could and and i really it really took me a lot of time because i i when i got uh, diagnosed i was totally a sofa uh, fan uh, i did anything of exercise and i think that when you understand that the exercise is part of the treatment and this last time that i went with my endo endocrinologist uh, he told me i, I was I, i've been not regular in exercise the last two months and he said you, you're doing everything perfect but if you don't do your exercise you're going to 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 stay high there's no way and i think that the only thing that we can do here different we have each we have the we have everything so near and you you have to walk maybe a lot a lot of uh, miles to get uh, to to the other city and that's maybe something that i could that say that it's a good thing here in mexico that we are more used to the physical activity more than than they do in the states that they are more technological technological video games and i think that's that's something that maybe in mexico we can do better but we don't do it yeah campeche is beautiful have you googled it right it's hermosísimo like i'm too poor to go there it's so beautiful you have to and we are the only state that is like the lower risk of spread of covid now COVID? uh yeah. and guess you know that's Campeche, Campeche, la Campeche, México, la capital. Okay, porque voy a llegar ahí. I'm going to show up. You think I'm playing, Jorge? <laughs> Welcome. So, you, and you were saying that, so COVID in Mexico is, is starting to slow down. Is that the, 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 there's just not as much? Well, here in, here in my city or my state, we, we were the first uh, state. They have this like light, light, uh, green light red light and, and yellow light and we are in green light since two months ago we have like 13 uh, people uh, with with COVID now so it's really low and the population is less than a million but it's really it, it has been contained really well that's great to hear because in texas we are not doing not doing so well we i think uh here there near near a thousand cases per day in dallas right now which is a uh, very a whole a whole lot the mexicans are really 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 clean like when i was in mexico this past time it was crazy to me i went to like little like not bodegas but like shops and they're tiny but outside i was telling rob yesterday that they have like these humongous garrafones like of water and they created these little makeshift like sinks and they're like lavate las manos o no entres like wash your hands or don't come inside we don't care if you have gel please wash your hands so I think Mexico is just doing a better job in general. So. Hope so. <laughs> well, and I think like community, like let's, so let's talk a little bit about that. E even public health wise and community wise, I feel like in a different way, 
just the spirit and culture of Mexico in the community is very looking after each other, right? And very concerned with with their fellow man. I think in the U.S., it's a little bit more worry about me first, and then and then address everybody else. Um, so I think you know, with with diabetes, have you seen that community like in your even in your small area? Do you know other people with diabetes, and are you guys connected? Yes. Yes, that, that's been, there have been a lot of efforts. It's really hard because we, I think one of the biggest problems in, in Mexico is that people doesn't get diagnosed. They, they, they have this all, I don't know, people doesn't take care. They say, and diabetes, if you don't, if you don't have like 600 uh, sugar, you don't feel bad. Or maybe you say, I'm just tired. There's a lot of heat here and there's nothing happening to me. So I think from the moment that you got the, the diabetes and the moment that you got diagnosed, there, there could be like four, five, six years or maybe never. Maybe you've always been there and, and you, got, you doesn't get, don't get diagnosed. So I think it's really difficult to have like uh, the scenario, uh, the, 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 like oh, the whole picture of how many people with diabetes are in Mexico. I think the last information we have from a census is like 2010, 10 years ago. So come on, we're, we're blind. We, we, yeah. don't, we, we cannot even have an approach to what the problem means now. So I think that uh, there was always, when I, got, when I got diagnosed, all the people in Capeche that I knew that have diabetes were 50 or 60 years old. No? That, that was like an, an old man illness. So I think that's, that's a, a great thing that we could share. Well, I'm not, I'm not young, but you are. And a lot of people that you have in diabetic doing things are. So I think that connection with other people that are struggling with the same at your same age, that's something that we need to, uh, we need to look forward. When we have this, the association, or when we were more active with the association, because still there, there were a lot of, of teenagers, and they don't feel because I was, I was, and I was saying, no, you can do it. You need to do this. You need to do that. But they don't have anyone of their ages that they are talking the same language. So that's why it's so important for me what you're doing, diabetic doing things, because you have all these examples, but also you need to sell them or you need to show them that there's no always a, a good day in diabetes that we have a lot of bad days and maybe the most are bad days and you need to to look forward to to get to get through it through the through this so i think that yes there's a sense of community just there's a lot of people we uh, we have a lot of uh, support of doctors that do, they were donating their well like lancets and all that and we were making them then to the through the people that need it but there's also another thing that's happening in mexico that's really 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 dangerous families of people with diabetes are uh, are i don't know how to say lucrando con enfermedades chicos or they 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 just say, oh, come on, I'm going to ask for, for lancets here and I'm going to ask for insulin here. And there's also a, a, a group in WhatsApp when there's people from all over Mexico and they're saying, oh, this, this mom or this lady in Facebook, she's, 
she just we, I just give her insulin and now she's asking again. Oh, están kineteando los supplies, like uh, they're hoarding them. They're yeah. hoarding them. I think that's the big problem because they are aprovechándose. They are they're taking advantage. Mm -hmm. Taking advantage of what that the people wants to help. And what's going to start happening is that people are not going to be helping anymore or helpful, helpful anymore. You know, there's, there's things like that here too. I, I'm, I can't speak necessarily to the groups, although I'm sure that stuff happens. But um, like, for example, there are companies that buy test strips from people with insurance and then sell them back to people without insurance. And it's just a really messy business. And I think sometimes people, I mean, it, like I've seen like billboards, like there's, I mean, these are very, in some cases, large companies. And then I think sometimes people with diabetes uh, try to start like a, here we would say side hustle, like a second income. And they see that as a, oh, I know about this. I could facilitate this and don't necessarily think about the, the people that they're alienating or taking advantage of. And I think it's, I don't know, it's just one of those things that people are trying to survive and Uh, do it in the best way they can, and sometimes that that means taking advantage of things. Yeah, that's really awful. That's the worst. I think we are in need of something. I, I think the big difference in in a diabetic that they, takes a right care of himself and the one that just doesn't care is that they need to be not only understand it by their families, but I have a lot of support from my family. I remember that the day I got diagnosed, they, I have family in Texas because I, I they will fly in the next week. So they came with the glucometer and with all the, the, the things that we, maybe it was really difficult to access. So I think that people with diabetes, what they need it is to understand that you need to do the things the right way. If you do it, not right you are going to have a problem not maybe not now maybe you're not going to feel bad today but then on on one two three years from now so i think that yes there's a big a big challenge in in challenge in changing the mind of the people with diabetes because if you say them from the start or if you sell them the idea that they are going to die anyway so I think whatever I do, whatever I have to do to, to take advantage, advantage for, I think there's no problem. I'm not going to be here to pay the consequences. It's, that's an interesting mind game sometimes to play, I think, too. Because um, you can look at it two different ways. You can say, okay, well, if I'm going to die anyway, die early anyway, it doesn't really matter what I do, I'm going to die. But I think you can take that without a disease. You can have that same mentality. But you could also look at it the other way where, and this is sometimes, I don't think about this often, but I think when I'm really contemplating my own mortality, which occasionally happens, I'm like, well, I'm already on borrowed time. Like I should be dead. Um, if I was born 50 years earlier, I'd probably be dead. So um, I'm on borrowed time. Like this is, I'm, I'm already like, this is bonus time. You know, this, I think this is, you know, you can choose to look at it as a blessing, right? So, but what you said was really interesting because I think, finding the right message or finding the right person. You could be somebody with diabetes and many of the people who listen to this podcast have someone in their life with diabetes. They're connected with somebody else, but there are so many people out there who are living in isolation and 
who don't have the right person in their ear or the right support with their family, or maybe they don't have family, or maybe their employer is, uh, is making things difficult for them, or they're having trouble with insurance, or they're having trouble with their job, or they have other responsibilities that are making them deprioritize their health. And I, I think to those people, I would just say like, that's okay. You know, it doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't make you a bad diabetic. It just, you just have not necessarily had the same advantages or the same access or met the right person or heard the right message. And I would also say it's not too late. Um, there's a lot of great examples of people who uh, hadn't taken care of themselves for a time, but they realized it was important and they were able to live a great life, uh, you know, once they got their their diabetes under control. Uh, Eritrea, you mentioned you were nine years old uh, and you were faking your blood sugars, but that eventually stopped and you took control of that. So, um, you know, I think you can always, it's not too late to change the story. Um, and I think sometimes we just need to look at, uh, take a different perspective on maybe what our initial reaction was to something. Yes, totally. And, and I think that, yes, definitely part of my treatment, it was the family support. I, I mean, my friend's support. I was starting high school, so my parents get to all my friends and they explain what to do if I have a low, if what to do if I have a high, and to my to my teachers and with all the people that were around me. And But also, I think that diabetes is a second chance to do the things right. So I, I've always said when we were in this, these courses where all the people that I went all the weekends when I got diagnosed, that diabetes will give us the opportunity to take care of ourselves and to have a really healthy life. That's, if, if I don't have diabetes now, maybe I will be overweighted and maybe I will have, uh, I don't know, heart issues and, and illness of other things because I will never stop and see what, what, what was I doing wrong. So I think that it's, it's an opportunity every day. It's, it's a second chance every day to do the things right or maybe do it better than yesterday and maybe there will be a day that you don't want to to do anything but as my doctor said you just don't don't stop taking your shots and then we'll be all right that, that, <laughs> that's something that i say uh often about uh compound interest like all of life's great treasures come from compound interest so just a little bit every day over a long period of time and it's, it's amazing how much you can accomplish. Okay, I want to do something different. Um, this will be the first one of this, and I'll need your help here, Eritrea. But um, I, on this podcast in the past, I asked people to tell me the one thing that they would tell someone with diabetes that they run into either at like an airport. They've only got a, they've only got a, a short amount of time. So I would like to, to ask you, to what is the one thing that you would tell someone with diabetes if you, if, who is struggling with their diabetes or has been recently diagnosed. And I'd like for you and Eritrea to have that conversation in Spanish uh, as we close out the episode. Okay, nice. Perfect. Okay. ¿Qué le diría a alguien? Eh, híjole. Qué difícil, ¿no? Hablamos. Pues no le digas, nomás no les digas, el burro trabaja doble, así que ponte a trabajar. No, yo creo que eh, definitivamente... Cuídate con todo lo que esto significa. Cuídate yendo con un especialista, cuídate haciendo lo que tienes que hacer, no dejando tu tratamiento de lado. Cuídate eh, 
todo, o sea, la, desde la cabeza, mentalmente, eh, y, y si tienes creo que ese objetivo y si tienes esa meta, pues bueno, todo lo demás viene, se deriva de eso, ¿no? De cuidarse uno mismo. Wow. Si uno dice muy profundo, fue del corazón, o sea, más que nada lo que quisieras para una persona. So you're basically saying, take care of yourself above all else, whether you go to the doctor, whether you go to the specialist, whatever it is you do, take care of yourself because ultimately everything else is incumbent on your health. Like how you're going to do well if you're not feeling good. So sweet. I love that. And uh, Jorge, I, I just want to, again, as we kind of close this episode up, first of all, if people are listening and they want to get connected with you, what is the best place to do that? I think Instagram will be the best place. Jorge S. Ruiz. Facebook, Jorge Esquivel Ruiz. And Twitter. I, I, I'm, I'm still on Twitter. Me too. I will follow you. We're, I'm slow on Twitter, but I'll follow you. My age just go. go. Hey. hey, I'm starting to get old too. So to look out. I've, I've, you're right though. We, we haven't had a lot of young people on this podcast, but uh, I got to do better. Got to move, move up a little bit sometimes. Y'all are around the same age. Son de la misma edad. No sé por qué se hace. Like, I don't know why he's acting like so young. Hey, you know, I wear the hat. That's the key. Um, but I will say, I, Jorge, you messaged me and you do uh, with a challenge and I'm, I'm grateful for that uh, because this, we want this to be accessible. We want this to be for people who need help with their diabetes, people who need community, people who need inspiring stories. And in order to do that, we've got to make it accessible. And uh, talking about Mexico, talking about Latin America, talking about South America, having someone here who speaks Spanish, uh, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that it's available to them where they need it. So, uh, I appreciate you, uh, doing that and also being a, a longtime follower. So, uh, and, and being along for the journey. So we're going to continue to do, I'm super proud of the work that we're doing now that'll be coming out next year. And, uh, this is just a great way to spend an hour, uh, in the afternoon. So thank you for your time. Amazing stories from all over the world.